Good morning. How you all doing today? Excellent, great, good. Uh, hey, my name is John Anderson, and uh, I'm on staff here at Door Creek Church. Great to be with you. Um, so since last time I was here uh, up front, I, we've, our family's had some big updates, so we're excited to tell you all that uh, as of two weeks ago, yesterday, we had moved from Middleton to Monona. So uh, we are excited to join the Eastsiders and, and be in proximity. Yay! Uh, it's been great. It's been great. Well, it's been great. It's all been unpacking and trying to find things, actually. It's been kind of defining our lives right now. Um, and one of the things that I've realized in the midst of this move and kind of getting to know an, a, a new community, even though I've been around Madison for a long time, is that I really, really dislike getting lost. Um, and I, part of the problem is, is with me, because I am the stereotypical guy where my approach to getting lost is when I'm lost, you just keep going, right? <laughs> And, and then if you keep going, the right way will present itself, because that totally makes sense. Um, and thankfully now, with, with GPSs and smartphones, that doesn't happen very much anymore, because you know, if you don't know how to use those, then you know, you're really in trouble. Uh, but occasionally, your GPSs outsmart you. You know what I'm talking about? Has this happened to anybody? So recently, um, my wife and I were on a trip in part of Wisconsin that we didn't know super well, and our GPS brought us to our, our final destination, uh, which was clearly not our final destination. So we were looking for a bed and breakfast that we were going to uh, be going to, and our GPS took us to this broken down service station. And so as we ended up there, being like, oh, this is going to be really fun. This is, I don't know what to do now. Um, and as we're sitting there trying to figure out what to do next, we realized pretty quickly that we were, in this case, relying on something that wasn't reliable. And we were certain, we were positive that we were on the right path. Uh, But the truth was we were far more lost than we realized. And today we're going to look at a story that's all about being lost and how for some of us, possibly, we are far more lost than we realize. Now we are, uh, this summer we're going through a series on the parables. And the parables were one of the primary methods that Jesus used to teach. And sometimes the parables can be a little bit confusing, right? But in their simplest form, a parable is an earthly story with a spiritual truth. Uh, And oftentimes they're about the kingdom of God and they kind of crack the window or the door open and let us peek in and kind of catch a glimpse of what does the kingdom of God look like. And the kingdom of God itself can be kind of confusing, but really the kingdom of God is just anywhere uh, where God is being followed as as king. And Jesus being the master storyteller that he was, he took these short, really simple memorable, easy to relate to stories and infuse them with these powerful spiritual truths. And in doing so, often these stories challenge how we see the world and even how we live our daily lives. Now today, the story that we're going to go to is, uh, go through is one of the most well-known and most loved stories in all of scripture. Uh, it's one of the longest stories or longest parables recorded. Uh, and it's about, uh, it's the third story, rather, in, in a series of three stories, all told in response to this group of grumbling religious people. Uh, in this story, we're going to find two people who are far from God. One from being very bad, and the other from being very good. And so take your Bibles and turn to Luke 15. Luke 15. Um, Turn on your smartphones, whatever. Luke 15, we're going to start in verse 1. So Luke 15, 
verse 1. And we're going to kind of jump in and out of the story as we go through this, this uh, chapter. And so just kind of keep your finger on the page or keep your phones on. All right, Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so a couple things to notice right off the bat. First of all, uh, the group of people that are closest to Jesus are the ones that one might expect actually being the furthest from God. I love the way uh, the message says it this way. A lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus. And so, so there are these sinners in general, whoever exactly they are, and then tax collectors specifically. Uh, and as you may know, the tax collectors were this despised group of bottom feeders of the Jewish uh, society. And part of that was because they worked for the Roman Empire, and they were pretty much universally hated. And so this motley crew of, of messed up people, for whatever reason, is packed in around Jesus just to be near him and to hear what he has to say. And then the second group of people that we see at the very beginning of this story are those that you might expect to be closest to Jesus, right? They're the religious leaders. They know the Bible inside and out. They've followed God's law. They've memorized it. These people are the religious authorities of the day. As, as you went through the culture, these people were well-respected. Like, they've kind of taken on this bad, you know, bad reputation. But in this culture, they were well, well-respected. And yet, when they see Jesus welcoming this group of questionable people, these sinners and tax collectors, they start to kind of lean in towards each other and grumble. They're like, what is, what is Jesus doing? What, what's happening? And Jesus, in response to this grumbling, tells three stories to try to paint a picture and show God's heart for those who are far from him. And we're going to jump in at the third story. So skip down to verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, it's important here to take just a moment and unpack kind of the emotional content of just these couple verses, because this request by the younger son is highly, highly offensive. This, this son is basically saying to his dad, dad, I wish you were dead so that I can have my stuff. And at this point in history, a person's family and their property was really their insurance plan. Uh, or their retirement plan. And so when the son goes and demands his share of the property prior to his father's death, he's actually setting his dad up for potential ruin. And so the younger son is not only dishonoring his father, he's also communicating that he is indifferent to his dad's welfare. And yet, for whatever reason, the dad goes ahead and, and splits the goods and allows his son to go on his way. He allows his son to make his own decisions. And at this point in the story, we, we see something interesting about God. We see that God allows people to make their own decisions, even really, really bad ones. Verse 11. So not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. And so this kind of living is exactly what we'd expect from this, this son so far. 
this kid is disrespectful, he's wasteful, he's a glutton, he's unwise, etc., 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 right? He's the bad son through and through. No doubt about his character or what kind of person he is. And so now that we're clear about what kind of person he is, the story continues. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, as you may know, for a Jew at this time, this job was especially a dehumanizing job. It's a clear indication of how low the sun has sunk. And at this point in the story... It might be easy, even natural, it's okay, to feel kind of good about what's happening, right? The son is getting what he deserved. He messed up, he was wasteful, and now he's reaping what he sowed. He's suffering, and he's finding no mercy from those around him. And if Jesus ended the story right at this point, we might assume that the, the moral of the story is something like this, like that justice comes to those who deserve it. But the story continues, verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. And so this theme of justice continues. The son has been humbled. His life is a total mess. And now he's ready to go back to his father with no expectations. But with the hope, just the hope, that his father might let him back into the household as a servant. And now remember the crowd that's listening to this story. I'm sure that the parallel between the younger son and the sinners and the tax collectors, that that has not been lost on them. And at this point, I'm guessing they're feeling some sense of uh, a mix of anxiety and nervousness, kind of like, where, where, where are you going with this, Jesus? They're kind of, they, maybe they're wondering, like, why are we around Jesus? And at the same time, what are the religious he- leaders hearing? My, my guess is, in this case, this is exactly the kind of sermon that they have been waiting for. They're like, yes, Jesus, finally, bring the heat. Amen. Preach it, brother. You tell them. Amen, amen. And this is just good dramatic storytelling because if, if you're new to the story, you're asking these questions like, how is the father going to respond? How is the son going to be punished? What's going to happen next? Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, a natural question to ask here is, how is it that the father saw him a long ways off? And it's clear from the text that he's been waiting for him. He's been looking out for him to come home. And his emotional response when he sees him is to be filled with compassion. Not not anger, not disbelief, not condemnation, but compassion. And, and, and this is easily lost on us. He, he ran to him. 
Men of honor did not run in this culture. This was a culture of, of great respect and honor. And this kind of behavior was neither respectful nor was it honorable. In fact, it, it was kind of uh, irregular and, and culturally embarrassing. Uh, it's a little bit like um, one of my most embarrassing stories. Would you like to hear it? Why not? Because you don't have to share anything back. All right, so, so I was, uh, when I was a senior in college, um, I had the opportunity to, uh, I was a line therapist, and I had the opportunity to work with kids with autism. And one of the kids I worked with loved to go swimming. And so uh, every shift, I was supposed to bring my swimsuit with in case we went swimming. And it was towards the end of the summer, and sure enough, I, I forgot my swimsuit back in my apartment. And I got there, and we were going swimming. Duh. And I didn't have time to get back to my place and come back again. And so the family that I was working for uh, very kindly offered a replacement suit, uh, which turned out to be Grandpa's swimsuit. And uh, they gave it to me in this little brown paper bag, like rolled up. And at that point, I was like, oh, this is not going to be good. And as I opened up the brown paper bag, sure enough, like Grandpa had not been swimming for many years. Uh, It was the shortest, tightest, little blue swimsuit you can imagine. Uh, whew, it was... Uh, don't picture. Uh, and, and I just want to tell you, at this point in my life, like, I was several pounds heavier than I am now. I also wore glasses uh, for some really bad vision. And the, this kid that I worked with uh, had this habit of running, screaming away from whatever adults that he was spending time with. And so we headed off to this Madison uh, public pool that I will not name... And uh, because of the time of day, it was packed with moms and their little kids. And so for the next two hours, oh man, two hours, I was humiliated as I was running blindly after this screaming child in my highly inappropriate attire. And let, let me just tell you, I don't think this is my imagination. I swear to you, as I went by these moms with their little kids, like they just grabbed them a little tighter. It was like... Do not get near that man. <laughs> oh, it was awful. I'm so glad to relive it with you. Um, and here's the thing. The, uh, in, this, in this story, this is kind of like the father's behavior. What happened for me and for the father, it was not immoral. And you might say, like, well, what I did was borderline, right? Uh, but it was certainly kind of shocking. And it was something that people perhaps would have, would have talked about afterwards. And it's the same way in this scene. People who would have witnessed the father behaving this way, they would have talked about this. They would have been like, did you see what the dad was doing? Like, that was kind of embarrassing. Wow, what was happening right there? And then the scene continues. Verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And so instead of the father taking time and making sure that his son was appropriately remorseful for all the bad things that he did, he kicks right into celebration mode. And what a celebration. Feasting and music and dancing. 
And not only that, but the father receives the son back into the family with full honor and privileges. Now, a couple weeks ago, Mark gave us some really helpful definitions, and I just want to remind you uh, right now what those are. Uh, So justice is getting what you deserve. You remember this? And mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting something, a good gift that you don't deserve. And what's happening in this story right here, this is not justice. This is not at all about life being fair. This is about grace. And at this point in the story, this is where I imagine that the reaction of the audience that was gathered around Jesus dramatic, shifted rather dramatically. I'm just imagining for the, the sinners and the tax collectors, they went from this like anxious, nervous, uncomfortable feeling to this deep sense of joy. Like, he's talking about us. This is awesome. And for the religious leaders, they went from kind of a, a smug satisfaction that justice was about to be delivered and we're going to tell them how it is to feeling really uncomfortable and even angry. And notice in the story so far, who's missing? The older brother. We haven't seen him since the very beginning. And so what has he been up to? Let's find out in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come. He replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. And so the older brother comes home to find a party and his response is anger. There's a party for the son who messed up. What is happening here? This is not fair. This brother does not deserve that. The other brother, he's been around for the emotional fallout of what's happened when his brother left. He has been doing everything right when his brother was a screw-up. And for what? And now notice that nothing's really changed for the other brother, right? No injustice has been done against him. He's angry because his, his brother is getting grace. He's getting something good that he doesn't deserve. And notice also this. This is subtle, but so important. The two brothers have now switched places. It's now the younger brother who's on the inside, and it's the older brother who's on the outside. And how does the father respond? He comes out and he pursues the son too. He comes out and he pleads with him. He's like, please come into the party. Come and celebrate with us. And the father once again is offering grace as he welcomes this older son in. But there's something about this scene that, and this offering of grace that feels really different to us, doesn't it? Verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, and yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You killed a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. Now the older brother's response, it reveals that his relationship with his dad is a transactional one, right? He's done a bunch of good things and now his dad owes him. And, and he also makes it very clear that he is not like that other brother. He totally distances, distances himself and doesn't associate himself with that one. And here's where the story ends. And this rather unexpected twist of who's actually in a relationship with the father. And in this story, we see Jesus describing two pathways that separate us from God. There's the way of the younger brother, and this is a life defined with self at the center, with immediate gratification. And it's, it's a life based on responding to these kinds of questions. What makes me happy? What do I want? What's best for me? And we see that this pathway ultimately ends with suffering and with pain. And for any of the any of you here that can't, can kind of relate with living a life like that, we see a God who can't wait to invite you home. Now, one of my favorite authors, uh, Philip Yancey, um, paints a, a picture of how beautiful and amazing this grace is through a retelling of this, this very story. And so I've asked my, my friend and colleague, uh, Cal, to come on up here for a little bit of story time. So can we just welcome Cal to the stage? All right, so here's what I want you to do as Cal reads the story. Um, is I, I want to just invite you to just close your eyes, get comfortable in your seats, take a deep breath, and just listen to this story. And as you're listening, I just want you to pray that God would open your minds and your hearts more fully to his grace for you. A young girl grows up in a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because the newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that is probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe? Florida? But not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. 
Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have you seen this child? But by now she has blonde hair and with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping, though, is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty. She's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory, and a single image fills her mind. Of May in Traverse City, when a million cherry trees bloom at once, with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, She wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries 
and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's, it's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement rubbed worn by thousands of tires and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often, a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. But not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. For any of you who feel like you're just too messed up, like the kind of life you've been living, that God could never love you for who you are and where you're at, this parable reminds you and informs you that that is not true. That God is waiting and watching and looking out for you to welcome you home just as you are. And he can't wait to celebrate your return. But remember, there's a second group here too. So the other way of being separated from God comes through being religiously good. And while we find the the younger brother in places of questionable character and reputation, we find the older brother, well, here. Here. At church. 
The older brother does all the right things. It serves in the church, memorizes scripture, avoids doing most bad things, and in the process runs the risk of rejecting God's grace because they don't think they need it. Now, here's the wonderful and potentially offensive point of this parable, is that all of us, in our own ways, are prostitutes in need of God's amazing grace. And are we, am I willing to admit that I am in need of the same kind of grace as someone who is obviously far from God? And if you're not exactly sure where you stand, if you're not sure if you relate to the younger brother or older brother or a mix or whatever, here's a few signs that can kind of help you be self-aware if you're like the older brother. And these are just some, some things taken from uh, Tim Keller from his book, Prodigal God, uh, which I highly recommend. That's based on this parable. So one of the signs that you're probably like the older brother is this, is if in your life there's just this undercurrent of anger. The older brother, they get angry when life doesn't work out for them like they think it should. Or they tend to get angry when they see something really good happen to someone that they know does not deserve that. And older brothers also struggle with directing that anger at themselves, right? Because they have a really high standard. And when they don't meet it, they get upset. And so how do you do with anger? A second sign is older brothers often follow Christ out of duty. Following Christ is a means to an end. Following Christ is about avoiding pain and suffering in life. It's about having a good life. It's about getting into heaven. It's not merely about just knowing Christ and having that be the end in and of itself. The beauty of knowing Christ should be enough. But is it? And the third sign, and these are not a complete list, there's many other things too, but these are just three things that I found helpful for myself and I hope are helpful for you. A third sign of being like an older brother is that older brothers tend to have a tendency of being, having religious and class superiority. So they struggle with understanding and relating to the poor, the broken, and the sinful because they have worked really hard not to be like that. And a sign of an older brother in recovery is when they see the poor and the broken and the sinful and they realize they're looking in the mirror. And so for those of us here who struggle with being like the older brother, I just want to close with two challenges for you. First is this, is if you sense in your heart a hardness towards any person or group of people, and you just feel like, if you're being honest, between you and God, right? Not between us here, because we kind of tend to fake it here a little bit, but between you and God and your hearts, if you're being honest, you, just, you, you have a hard time believing that God loves them or that person in the same way that he loves you. Right? Or maybe, God, you love them, but I, I can't love everybody, God, right? And I just want to encourage you and challenge you even to take time today and throughout this week and the coming months to just confess that to God, because that is wrong. Just to come to God and be like, God, I am sorry that my heart is not like your heart. Change me, break me, soften me, help me to love like you love, to give grace like you've given grace. I am sorry I confess that. Confession is a healthy and necessary process for all of us as we're following Christ. It's a good thing to do. And the second thing is I would encourage you 
to pursue and be really intentional about pursuing friendships with those who are not Christians. And do it, and this is so important, do it with no objective other than to offer love and grace that reflects God's love and grace. And, and this might include inviting them here to join us, right, on a, in a service. That's great. But it could be as simple as having them over for a meal or going to their house or just spending quality time together. Be intentional about those relationships and just loving and pouring out grace and compassion and love like the Father does. And a sign that we are becoming more like Jesus is when we find ourselves as individuals and as a community surrounded by messed up, broken people just like us who can't wait to get around Jesus and just hear what he has to say. And so here's my hope for us. Here's my dream for this community is that we may become a community and be a place where all people are drawn by the amazing grace of God and that we may celebrate like the Father when all are welcomed home. So let me pray for us. God, I thank you for your amazing grace. I praise you for your amazing grace. And I just confess out loud that I don't understand it and I don't allow it to shape my life to the degree that I, I would want it to. And so I just pray for all of us that, that your grace would transform us. I pray for those who relate to the younger brother that they would be welcomed home, that they would come to you just as they are and allow you to run out to them and embrace them and welcome them home. And I pray for those who are like the older brothers. I just pray, God, that you would break us, that you would soften our hearts, that you would take away our pride and help us to be humbled and come to you and receive your grace, knowing that we are all in need of it in your eyes. And all to your glory. Amen.